It's back to school time. I could tell that you're wildly enthusiastic about that, so I'll stop talking about it. <laughs> Zool, right? It's a strange new time for all of us. But it leads me back into what the summer held for us. I mean, it was such a strange time, and yet there were some highlights to our summer. For instance, I can even see out in the crowd right now, some of you are wearing shirts from the revival that never was. Wow. That's crazy. These are going to be the kind of things that you can sell on the internet for billions of dollars someday. It was the one year the revival shirts were made for a revival that never was. But then we also had Summer Blitz. That was fun, right? Summer Blitz was a good time. Got to play at K1 and hang out in San Diego. Uh, that was great. We, did, we made something out of really nothing. And the summer has been an unusual one for all of us. But now that we kind of know what to expect for this whole COVID season, uh, make no mistake, we are working really hard to plan for a great fall for all of you. So stay tuned for what's to come. You guys can't see my screen, right? Yeah, we're good? Almost. Okay. Stay tuned for what's to come. There are some great things ahead, but there's one thing I want to spend some time talking with you about tonight because it was such a big deal in my heart and in the minds of those who went, I'm sure. Of course, I'm talking about uh, our STM Utah missions trip. And, <laughs> Yes. So good. Now, here's, here's my pitch for you guys. I'm going to walk you through some of what we did there. And my hope is that every single one of you will want to come with me next year. I really mean that because uh, even though this year was a, a strange year, we didn't get to go into some of the things that we normally get to go into. But uh, we had such a great time. Right, STM Utah team? Such a good time. In part, because of so many of the great conversations that we had. I mean, not only that, we did get to have some fun. We played in the lake. Um, Ella almost died. But beyond that, none of us got COVID so far, right? We're good. I don't think any of us got COVID. We're doing pretty good. So I want to walk you through some of what happened. And I also want to give you three lessons to walk away with. Three things that you can learn from Mormons that you may not be fully aware are actually lessons for you to learn. Now, make no mistake, uh, there is nothing uh, redemptive about Mormonism that is salvific. That is, you can't get saved by being a Mormon. You can't get saved by being a Mormon. You can't buy Mormon theology and still find yourself in heaven serving God forever. But that doesn't mean you can't learn from them. In fact, there's lots of things that you can learn from them. And many of those lessons I can't share with you uh, because time doesn't allow us. But I do want to share some of those things. But first, here's the STM Utah crew. This is the day of our departure. It was bright and early in the morning. Went to John Wayne Airport. It was completely empty. Basically a ghost town. Everything was shut down. Uh, but when we got on the airplane, the first airplane anyway, uh, there was like spaces available. So we got to like lay, some of us got to lay down and kick our feet up. It was like first class in coach. An amazing experience. Definitely should try that once. But SCM Utah worked really hard, guys. Uh, we spent weeks and weeks and weeks practicing uh, some of the things that we would need to know to, to have some good conversations with Mormons. And in fact, some of those things that we did was role play. We'd pretend uh, someone was a, a Mormon, and then we'd, we'd go back and forth practicing, uh, learning to share the gospel. Easier said than done. Some of you guys know the gospel inside and out, but what you don't know is that Mormons use a lot of the same language but have a very different meaning. So when you're talking to a Mormon, it's not as easy as simply saying, hey, do you know who Jesus is? Do you know that you're a sinner and that you need to repent and put your trust in him so that you can be with him forever? 
Well, for them, uh, they already have a gospel of sorts. In fact, their gospel is something like this. Uh, everyone's going to heaven, no matter who you are, unless you do something really bad. And it has to be really, really bad, like on the scale of Hitler, Mussolini bad. Otherwise, everyone's going to heaven. And if you're a really good Mormon, you not only get to go to heaven, but you get to get to the highest level of heaven. And someday you get to be, listen to this, your very own God of your very own planet. How's that sound? I know. If you're a guy, I should say. If you're a gal, if you're a gal, you, you get to be eternally pregnant. How's that sound? <laughs> pregnant gals are like, nope, nope. <laughs> anyway, uh, in Mormonism, though, that's a great privilege. You get to be uh, a god of your own planet, and that god gets to have a goddess wife, um, potentially multiple goddess wives, and they get to populate their own planet, which is what they believe happened here. So we, pr we practice role-playing. We spend a lot of time, hours memorizing uh, verses, hours memorizing the kind of tactics that we might employ, and, uh, and we got to spend time at, at Utah doing that exact thing. This is our closing shot. Uh, and this is just, a, we, we're still happy. This is, <laughs> this is the last day. Uh, and the whole week did not destroy us. In fact, so much of the week was uh, so much better than I could expect. I thought it was going to be a tough week because of COVID shutting everything down. But Utah actually has a lot more things open than we do here. And beyond that, because there's Mormons, like you, you could pick up a rock and throw it any direction. You'll hit 10 Mormons easy. So we got some of those Mormons and we we had them join us in various places to talk about our faith. And when they asked, hey, what are you guys doing here? I said, well, we're here learning how to share our faith in Utah <laughs> and even to Mormons. And those conversations went really well. So there are three big takeaways that I have, and these are not going to be the kind of preaching points that you normally hear from me. It's a different night. It's a different situation. Next week, we'll get into our fall series, which will lead us into our real fall series. But for tonight, we got something special in a different format. Let me introduce you to the first lesson. And I'm going to start it this way. This first lesson comes from my experience with two very special young men. One in particular. There are two men that are listed here. Actually, not listed. You'll see them here. The, the one at the further end of the photo who's kind of staring at, it looks like Riley. Uh, I can't quite tell, but he's, he's got this, he's holding the V. Um, his name is Jacob. Next to him is a, is a guy by the name of Tyson. We met these guys um, kind of happenstance. We didn't know who they were until they showed up at our location and they sat down and they had dinner with us. Well, one of the things I learned about Jacob, in addition to the fact that he has a, a new, almost one-year-old baby boy, um, is that he really, really, really knows his Bible. In fact, the whole time that we were there with him, the conversation was going back and forth. He was not pulling up his iPhone or his iPad and saying, well, let me look up that verse. I know what that verse is and searching it. He was, from memory, opening up his paper Bible and flipping back and forth to passages. And he would talk about these passages with great familiarity, with intimacy, like he knew them. Some of you guys who were sitting at the table, you, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? The guy was so good with his Bible. And not only that, it gets better or worse, depending on how you see this. As he's flipping through his Bible, he's 
checking in with us to say, hey, do you, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like he'll talk about this thing or that thing. And it says, so you understand what I'm saying, right? Uh, assuming that we know just as much as he does. But in so many ways, he was like, he's level 10 in terms of Mormon knowledge of the Bible. The guy was what they call a scripturian, someone who's familiar with scripture and knows their way around the Bible back and forth. Now, let me just say this as a pastor, talking to this young man, he knows the Bible better than most Christians I know. That's a scary thing to say, given the fact that we're a Christian church, which we love the Bible. That's what we teach. That's what we're all about. And yet this young man, Jacob, was so fluid and so skilled with his Bible that he was making it seem like, like he knew the Bible better than, again, than, than most of people, uh, that, that I, most Christians I know. He also said something like this when he turned to Galatians. He said, oh, I love this passage. It's one of my favorites. And he would quote it. He's reading part of it, but he's quoting it to us, talking about his great love and affection for these passages. Some of the myths that I had going into this is that most Mormons, and maybe this isn't a myth in its truest sense because it's mostly true, but the stereotype is that Mormons are fully brainwashed, they're lifeless, uh, they're, they're weird, and they're creepy, and they know how to parrot uh, arguments, but they're not really personally involved with the God that they supposedly serve. Jacob broke that paradigm for me in a helpful way. In fact, one of the distilling lessons that I learned from him is this. The devil is really good at making bad look good. I say that because in my interaction with Jacob, I, we had some, I, I didn't really do a lot of talking with him, but his, my interaction with him is that he was able to make Mormonism seem really, really attractive. His knowledge of scripture, again, top notch. And he was able to sharpen swords with the best of them. But he was able to take something that ordinarily really bad. You know, so Mormonism, I gave you just one part of it. It's, you know, exaltation to godhood, owning your own planet. You know about their polygamous past. Some of you might be aware that they, for the longest period of time, didn't allow black people into the priesthood until 1978, I believe. They have a sordid and colorful past. So bad religion. And yet Jacob, because of the way that he interacted with us, was able to make it seem incredibly good. The devil is good at making bad look good. I mean, it's clear. I mean, if some of you guys remember the pictures I showed from last year. I mean, this is part of the temple square. You see the, the immaculate nature of this place. It's really pristine, well manicured, well groomed. And because there's no one on the streets right now, it's especially clean. It's a very superficially beautiful religion. Immediately, I thought of 2 Corinthians 11. Let me just read this to you really quickly here as we, as we work our way through this. And I'm going to keep telling you more stories about Utah, but it's important that you understand where I'm coming from with this whole thing. Paul's defending his apostleship in this passage. He's warning the Corinthians about these false teachers, these false apostles who are seeking their affection, but truly don't love them. These false teachers, these false apostles are, are really meant to undermine what Paul has done. So here's what Paul says. He says, and what I'm doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. In other words, these guys are claiming to be apostles, just like me, the apostle Paul says. He says in verse 13, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, Here's the critical part that I want you guys to see here. No wonder why. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
fix that there. There you go. Even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. I want you to pay close attention here. The fact that Satan, who is the king of darkness, is wearing a mask. He's pretending. He is masquerading as someone who is of the light. And not only just someone of the light, he's an angel. Someone who is beautiful and attractive. Satan himself, once an angel of light, disguises himself, parades as something that he's not. Why? In order to deceive people like yourself and myself who are seeking to follow the light of Christ. Paul says to be wary. He says, you're going to see a lot of things in this world, particularly through false teachers, that present themselves as people that are on your side. We are the light, they might say. We are of Christ. We are the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, after all. It's in our name. You can trust us. And yet Paul would say, these people disguise themselves. In fact, it's funny that Paul talks about these apostles of Christ. They disguise themselves as that because they would call themselves apostles. Some of their top upper echelons of leadership are called apostles. And in fact, their topmost guy is called a prophet. They believe in ongoing prophecy through these, uh, through these modern day revelators. 2 Corinthians 11, 12 through 15 ought to be a good reminder for you that you're going to see the devil be really good at making bad look good. It's important that you keep your discernment cap on as we look at things like this. So again, as we go back to Jacob and Tyson, I want to pull some implications for you and for me. Again, I saw these young men who so, man, I I can't overstate just how much they impacted me in, in the best way possible, especially Jacob. Such a knowledgeable, pleasant, enjoyable young man who had a genuine, a genuine love for something. And what he thought was Christ, what he thought was God's word. It wasn't just the Bible. It was the Book of Mormon, Pearl of Great Price, Doctrine and Covenants. All of that was together in his fat book there. But I want you to, 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 to think with me here. If you came across this young man and he schooled you in the Bible, you said, well, hold on a second. Doesn't the Bible say uh, Isaiah 43, 10, there's no other God but one. And, uh, but he would say, well, hang on a second here. Maybe you don't understand that well. Have you considered this passage and this passage and this passage? And he's not opening up his phone, but he's using his Bible to walk you through these things. How might you respond to that? I found it so fascinating that this young man who had such a great love for this false God in so many ways, perhaps to, to many people's shame, loved this false Christ more than the real Christ. I want you just to walk away with at least one or two implications for you here. I want you to diagnose your own love for Christ. Do you love the real Christ more than the false religions love their fake Christ or their false God? Do you have as much devotion and loyalty to the true God of the Bible than these other religions have for, for instance, the, 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 the book of Quran, the Quran, not the book of Mormon, the, the conflating here. I read a story uh, about a, a Muslim who converted. And in his story, he talks about him and his family, how they had such a reverence for God, Allah, that they wouldn't even let the Quran touch the floor. The Quran had to be lifted highest book in the room. So they would take the Quran and gently and lovingly slide it on the highest shelf so that everyone in the family knew that the word of Allah was held in the highest esteem, not only figuratively, but literally held in the highest esteem. I look at guys like that, and I look at Mormons who have a love for their false God, and I wonder, do we love God the way that we should? Those who have the truth and know it, 
I'm talking to Christians, obviously, in this outside room. Those who have the truth and know it, do you love Christ more than these people who are trapped in a system love their false God? More than that, I don't know how you could separate Christ and his word. Do you love his word? I guess this is one of the bigger points that Jacob helped me to crystallize in my own mind is uh, he loved the Bible. It was clear. Uh, as he was turning his pages, I was kind of peeping over at his papers and I could see notes written on every page, it seemed like. He was turning pages and I see highlights and underlines and cross-references. He had stickies on the page that I think would help him remember certain places that he wanted to go to. He would quote passages as he's getting there. He would say, oh, this is over here in the right column, second paragraph. He was, as he was navigating the Bible, I was just like, man, I can't do that, first of all, because I read my Bible on an iPad. But, <laughs> but I... I you know, if I had my physical Bible, would I be as fluid as he was? Would you be? Diagnose your own love for the word. You can't love Christ and not love his word. In fact, if you do love Christ, that's going to reflect in the way that you spend time with him. For so many of us, it's easy for us to just simply get into the habit and the routine of reading your Bible, just to check it off and get your mom and dad off your back, perhaps. Or if you're above that, and maybe you don't have to have mom and dad tell you to read it, maybe you read it and you, you blaze on through. You're reading it, but you're not reading it prayerfully. You're not reading it seriously and mindfully and thoughtfully. You're reading it as you would read a science textbook. You're reading the paragraphs. You're, yes, I get that. And you're moving on, not treating it with the reverence and respect that is perhaps due for this. Your leather-bound Bible may not have blood on it, but make no mistake, people have died and shed their own blood so that you could have it in your language. Diagnose your love for the word. The devil is good at making bad look good. And one of the ways that he does that is by showing us the contrast. People that love a false Christ. People that love the word, but not appropriately. One of the frustrating aspects of talking to Jacob and many of the Mormons is that they have a sense of what is true. They get so close and yet they miss it by so much. I perhaps take it for granted and maybe you do too. I go to a Christian church. I have Christian parents. I have a Christian cat. Just checking if you're listening. I have, you know, Christian clothes because True North makes a t-shirt every other week, it feels like. <laughs> I have Christian everything. My whole life is Christian filled. But maybe we take it for granted that we truly understand and love the gospel. I looked at Jacob and I felt a love for him because he was lost and yet he just, I mean, he, I know that he knows in his heart. Like I know that I know that I know. He would say that but I know that he doesn't know because he's got the gospel so wrong. And I started thinking about you guys and I started saying to myself, man, am I assuming that True North or Compass, people that go to Compass, who go week in and week out and hear expositional preaching, that you really understand what the gospel is and why it's so special to us and why we're not Muslims or Mormons or uh, Hindus or anything else that we're Christians. Why? because of the gospel. The gospel is what makes us who we are. You see, I think we need to spend some time on this. <laughs> and we will. The devil is good at making bad look good. And one of the things he does really well, the devil, is he distorts the truth so that it's close enough to be, to be acceptable, but far enough to be damnable. Diagnose your understanding of the gospel.
one of my favorite verses and probably yours and one that you know is John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. It's a favorite for Christians for centuries for so many reasons, but not the least of which is that it makes it clear how the gospel is to be received and responded to. We believe in the shed blood of Jesus. We believe in that. And that belief, that belief is what secures eternal life for us. Not your works, not your goodness, nothing else. Another lesson comes from an, another way that the Mormon church looks really good. We had conversations with a guy like this. This is Russ. We went to a Mormon ward. Talk about creepy, guys. Um, the Mormon ward is the equivalent of our church service. Uh, the, uh, unlike how we do this here, like there's one church that meets at Compass, like we're one church. Um, when you drive by one of the, the Mormon buildings, um, there are many wards that make up one stake. So this might be a stake. Like we'd, we'd have five or six different wards that would meet here. Um, so if you go down the block and you see that beautiful Mormon building down there, that would be a stake that would host multiple wards. We went to a ward during one of their services and we met Russ. Russ is a really sweet guy. He's the one on the right-hand side of this picture here. Um, we really enjoyed him. I mean, he's a sweet guy, very gracious, very kind. Later on in the week, we met these two guys among many others of their friends. In fact, this is a picnic where we're having a lot, we're having picnic time with a bunch of Mormons. There was, uh, what, 22 of us, 22 of us Christians there and the other 20, 40 or so were, were Mormons. We got to play uh, ultimate with them. And at the end of the time, we had some conversations about what they believed. Uh, another time during the week, we met at a park. Uh, this is, uh, is it Brian? Brian. Brian. How could we forget Brian? <laughs> Brian is another gracious guy, very sweet. Um, the smartest guy you might meet, but not smart in the like, man, you're, <laughs> it's hard to say. Um, very smart in some ways. Let me just say that. Very smart in some ways. We met this gal who I know Kristen hit it off with when we were doing our car wash. Um, we got to meet a lot of sweet people. In fact, one of my favorite days was the day where we had all these guys here at, our, at the backyard of the blue house where we stayed. And we just had such a good time with them because they're such polite people. And for, for most of them, I honestly believe they are some of the most sincere people that you will ever meet. I would love to have a Mormon neighbor. Uh, I'd love to have a Mormon coworker. Well, that wouldn't work at a church. Never mind. <laughs> Take that back. <laughs> <laughs> that would be weird, right? <laughs> uh, but anyhow, they're very nice people. You, you get what I'm saying here, right? They're very nice people. Which leads me to my second lesson here is that even, even though we believe based on scripture that they are wrong, 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 as wrong as can be about what the Bible teaches about who they are, who we are, and how we get right with God, that doesn't mean that they still can't have good people. Bad religion still can produce good people. Now, I, I wanted this to be a point for you guys because one of my concerns is that you might come across these really nice, noble, kind-hearted, genuine people and be confused by that. You might say, well, wait a minute. I thought we had the truth. How is it that these people are so much nicer and friendlier and so much more respectful than us, and yet they don't have the truth? What's going on here? Let's talk about that. Why, does it, why is it true that bad religion can still produce good people? Well, first and foremost, let, don't forget 2 Corinthians 11, right? That Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. That's what he does. That's his MO. He wants to make the bad look good so that you get entrapped in his system. But like, uh, by, by the way, just so you know here, when I use the word good, I'm using it subjectively or uh, 
uh, yeah, subjectively and not absolutely. Um, so if you think of good, think of air quotes good. Like they're good people. Good by average standards, not good in an absolute sense. Only God is good. We get that. But one of the things I want to bring into your, your mind first and foremost is that niceness and God's goodness are not the same thing. When you meet nice Mormons or nice Muslims or nice Hindus or nice atheists, uh, moral atheists, some might say, now, I don't want you to confuse their niceness with God's definition of goodness. They're two different things. Niceness can be had by anybody. You can have a nice anything, anyone. In fact, that's what makes false teachers so dangerous is that they're so stinking nice. Niceness is nice, <laughs> but it is not goodness. It is not goodness as God defines it. Niceness also does not equate to, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, I get it, truth. <laughs> Niceness does not equate to truth. Let me help try to paint a small picture of this. Suppose for a, a moment that I, I, I was trying my best to have you drink a, a vial of poison. And I came to you with a smile and my teeth were perfectly straight. My breath smelled like candy. And I was wearing the nicest clothing you've ever seen. I was looking straight in your eyes with my pearly white eyes and my beautiful brown colors. And I was saying, friend, sorry, <laughs> not very eloquent about that. Friend, drink this vial of poison it'll do you well. I am confident. In fact, I bear you testimony that this vial of poison is the best thing for you. I can tell you with absolute surety that this vial of poison is the best thing you can do for your health and your body right now. Take some of this. And then I winked at you at the end and I did the shotgun fingers and everything so that you knew I was trustworthy. <laughs> Despite the fact that I would be the nicest guy you ever met probably at that point in time, doesn't change the fact that what I'm saying is still patently false. No matter how many times I might say, I tell you the truth, this is exactly the way it is. I'd still be lying to you. I may not know that I'm lying to you. There's a chance that I might be ignorant. But the idea here is that niceness does not mean goodness. Goodness is God-defined, not people-defined. That's such an important point because so much of our world right now is struggling because we don't understand that. So many of the social causes of the day are gaining traction and steam, not because they don't sound good, but, but because they sound nice, but they're not God's good. It's kind of the difference between a weed and a flower. Uh, a weed and a flower, they, they can kind of look the same. In fact, there are some weeds, uh, dandelions, for instance, that look nice. You know, they're flowers. They're, they produce blossoms. My daughter picks them all the time and she gives them to, to mom, thinking that she's giving her some kind of great gift, right? And they're like, no, this is a weed, honey. Throw it away. But sometimes weeds look really attractive, right? But the difference between a flower and a weed comes down to the seed. What it actually is, is what's going to be produced. So even if a weed looks nice on the outside, that doesn't mean it's actually a true flower. I want you to take a quick look at Galatians 5 really quick. Just look at the screen for me. Notice this, okay? I want you to pay attention to where this fruit is coming from. Galatians 5.22, some of you guys have this memorized. But the fruit of the Spirit is... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Pop quiz. Where does this fruit come from? What is the seed? Spirits. The spirits. Therefore, the only people who can produce true spiritual fruit are those who have the spirit. 
Only the Spirit of God can produce the fruit of God. You might ask yourself, okay, what about Mormonism then? Where does Mormonism get their veneer of, I mean, they're, they're kind. There's a lot of things that feed into that. There's a lot of things because part of it is their system of works that says if you don't do good, you're not going to be good enough to make it to Heavenly Father. If you want to make people really, really nice, say if you're not super nice, you're not going to heaven. That's, that's a really good thing to wave over someone's head. Mormons are really nice, guys. There's a lot of religions that produce nice people, but nice does not mean good. Nice does not mean truth. Another factor, though, is that Mormons, in addition to their niceness, are also very emotional. I'm going to spend a lot of time on this because there's a lot of, a lot of things I can say here, but uh, we talked to, I don't know how many Mormons we did, but I feel like for every single one of them, they told me something over and over again. They knew that we were Christians. They knew that we had, we, we were there in part to talk to them. Here's what they told us. You guys, you Christians, you're going to heaven. You're going to heaven. I said, really? Don't you think we're wrong though? I mean, that's why Mormonism was established, right? You're the restored church on earth. Isn't that what Brigham, uh, isn't that Justice Smith said? They would say, you know, yeah, but there are things that have been clarified for us. And one of those things is that good people like yourselves are going to go to heaven. Now, what level you get, that's, that's a different story, but you're, you're good people. And in fact, what was so crazy, so crazy for, for all of us, is that for so many of these people, they would tell us like, hey, we're so glad you're here. We're so glad you're doing this. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, you don't understand why we're here then. We're here to tell you you're wrong. <laughs> and they would say things like, we're so glad you're here. We think this is amazing. We need more young people like you. We need more people that are willing to stand up for the truth or something like that. I'm thinking, you guys don't understand then what we're doing here. But they're very emotionally charged. In fact, they're very, uh, they're very touchy-feely. In fact, one of their primary systems to discern truth is pray about it and you'll feel something that confirms this is true. I, I, I hope that at this point you guys would all know that having that kind of response to, uh, to what is true versus false is not a good way to determine things. Yeah, these guys here that, I mean, man, Here's, what, here's, here's something I want you to pay attention to. Next time you talk to a Mormon, you ready? Next time you talk to a Mormon, if by chance you get them into a place where you can, it's like checkmate, right? You said something that they don't know the answer to, here's what they're taught to do. If they're in a position, if they're like a cat in a corner, what they're gonna do is they'll claw you with their testimony. They'll say something like this. I bear you testimony that the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is God's true church on the earth in these latter days. And Joseph Smith is his true prophet. Some variation of that, some formulaic response. And they build that over and over again because when it comes down to their mind being challenged, they're taught to, to get back up. Don't, don't let yourself go too far. In fact, rely on the fact that you have this experience, which is called the burning in the bosom. It's a real thing. They tell you, if you want to know what truth is, pray to the God of Mormonism. And if it's true, you will feel a burning in your bosom, your chest, your soul. You'll feel a burning here that confirms to you that it's true. And in fact, one thing you should always uh, recognize is that appealing to feelings is a red flag that you're being manipulated. Whenever someone is appealing to your emotions to have you do something, it's a red flag that you're being manipulated. We have no problem with emotions. 
So long as those emotions follow the train of God's word leading the pack, right? God's word teaches us to think. We respond to that thinking by emoting. Emoting has its place, but it's never in the front of the train. It's the caboose. It's the caboose. Thinking, knowing, responding to God's word is the primary vehicle by which we discern truth. Don't let your feelings change the truth. This is one of your challenges as a young person. Today, your biggest challenge is to let your feelings for your best friend who came out as homosexual or your, your best girlfriend who's now trans or your best, your favorite uncle who's now Nancy. Your challenge is to let your feelings say, well, man, he's my favorite uncle. Surely God can't call that wrong. And by the way, he's among the most loving person that I know. It's so easy to let your feelings determine what is true. But the moment you allow that to happen is the moment that you set yourself off on a course that has no parameters whatsoever. Because if your feelings are the plumb line for what is true, then what's to happen if we all felt that Nazi Germany was a good idea? You might find that repulsive right now, right now, but suppose it's 10 years from now. After we've all kind of got on the bandwagon of this is a good idea, what happens then? Like your feelings can't be a good barometer for truth. And whenever someone's appealing to your feelings, you're being manipulated. Guys, God is different than us. God does not do things the way that we do things. This is why you're a Christian, I trust. Because you recognize that God is God and you are not. God is the one who makes the rules and we don't get to say boo about that. Think about this with me, okay? Just one second. I know we're, we're running down on time and I'm going to finish on time, I promise. No, I won't. I take that back. I will be close to on time. <laughs> Think about the doctrine of hell. Is there anyone who would be willing to say, man, I love the doctrine of hell. It's amazing. Like none of us is comfortable with that. And yet, and yet, if we believe what we confess about who God is, we can say, God, you are just and even if it hurts me to say, hell is your goodness on display. Hell is a difficult doctrine, especially if you undergird that, that doctrine with election and reprobation. Then it becomes a whole lot more challenging because now we're operating at a different level of what God has revealed to us about who he is and how he makes these decisions. You can't let your feelings change the truth. If you're not often disturbed by what you read in scripture, if you're not challenged, if you're not hurting when you read scripture on occasion, you're probably not reading it right because God confronts us, young one. And that's the difference between us and Mormons. We don't let our feelings determine what's right and wrong. We let the word of God determine what's right and wrong. Okay, let me get you to lesson three. This whole time that we were in, in Utah, we, we got to experience two churches. One of them was Redemption Church in Ogden. Uh, another one, uh, a new favorite church of mine, is Wasatch Cowboy Church. It's called Cowboy Church. Yes, you heard me right. Cowboy Church. Instead of saying amen, they would say? Yeehaw. They'd say yeehaw. Serious. <laughs> they wore cowboy boots and... I mean, you could tell there's wood. There's, there, here, here's their, their meeting space. They had wooden crosses and the songs they sang were like cowboy country songs. And some of us bore our te testimony. 
Um, but anyway, at this cowboy church, it was so refreshing because one of the beautiful things about this was that Pastor Larry, the, the, the pastor at cowboy church, is an ex-Mormon. Sandra Tanner, one of the other people that we got to meet with over Zoom, is an ex-Mormon. Russ East, who is our missionary liaison in Utah, is an ex-Mormon. The third lesson here is that the gospel is still powerful enough to save anyone. It's not just about the Mormons, guys. I know that you all have people in your lives, grandparents, uncles, neighbors, friends, perhaps even your own parents who are not Christians, and you think they're never going to get it. They're never going to come to Christ. But let me echo to you what Paul said. We don't need to be ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is still at work. And here's the thing. When we were in Utah, we were reminded about the gravity of this. Why? We went to a, a cemetery and we got to see name after name after name, a person buried in the ground who was, was a what? <laughs> was a Mormon. I mean, we got to spend time praying and thinking about our own lives and saying, man, what does this matter? Why are we doing this? It matters because eternal life is, on the, is, is, is at stake. Life and death are literally at stake when we talk to others about the gospel or when we don't talk to others about the gospel. You have people every day who are being sucked into a religious system of some sort, whether it's secularism or Mormonism or whatever else, and they're saying, I'm staking my entire life on this. This gravestone here says that they were sealed August 29th, 1942. That means they so believed in Mormonism that they got married inside the temple in a secret ceremony that forever keeps them together in heaven and beyond. Don't forget the fact that scripture says that in heaven, you're neither married nor given into marriage. They believe that marriage continues. And so we spent time praying. We spent time asking ourselves why we were there. And there's this one tombstone here that I took a picture of. I don't think I'd noticed this one before. Cyrus Rawson. Look at the bottom of his tombstone. Can you read it? Might be too far for you to see. But underneath it, Underneath his name has the inscription, his wives. Mary Lucy, Annie, and Susan. Buying a system once more that has life and death as its end, hanging in the balance. My point though, is that while it's serious and while there's gravity here, don't believe that anyone is too far gone. I don't want you to think that anyone in your world is so beyond the reach of God that he can't save them, even tonight. My question for you is, are you praying for them? Are you asking God to use you to see them one to salvation? Have you given up on them? If so, don't give up. Tonight, start praying again and pray mightily for them. Don't give up on the people in your life who so reject the gospel and give you the stiff arm. God can break arms and God can break hearts, which is why if you're a Christian, that's why you're here tonight. However, having said that, I don't want you to overestimate your ability. I don't want you to think that you've got the answers, that you're so smart or so talented or so anything that you have the ability to save somebody. Obviously, that's the work of God. In fact, when we went to Utah, we had a, a, a workbook that was filled with arguments. And really, I'm not sure how much we used it. Because when it came down to it, every Mormon is different. Every Mormon believes different things. And so what we ended up having to do is what really all of us will have to do is trust the Spirit and work our way through it. I learned that there's not a lot of people like, like, like Jacob who knows vast amounts of Scripture. He's one of their young guys. He, he has no formal role in the church, but he knew so much. 
And then we got to meet this guy named uh, Blake Wil Wilkinson. Blake Wilkinson and his wife, Jolene, who he is called a, uh, uh, I'm going to mess this up. He's called a patriarchal benefactor. That means that he oversees several different stakes. He oversees a lot of them. And he's kind of the go-to guy if they have questions. What we found interesting is that Jacob knew his Bible a lot more and this patriarchal benefactor didn't do as well. Every Mormon is different. Every person is different. My point in all that is to say, trust the spirit. Let God lead you in that. Don't overestimate your ability, but never, never, never underestimate the spirit's ability to use you. Trust him. That's the thing. Are you trusting him? How do you know if you're trusting the spirit? You're using his word, you're praying, and you're letting him lead you. Your willingness to obey. Prayer, scripture, and a willingness to obey. Those are the tools of his trade. If you're letting those be part of your life's work, then you're letting the spirit lead you. And that's how you can be used to draw people to the gospel. The gospel is still powerful enough to save anyone, but you have to be a willing participant in sharing that, just like your classmates did this summer. Guys, this is one of the best summers we've ever had. We got to make new friends, got a couple new friends on Facebook now. Um, I really hope that next year when we do this, that you will seriously consider joining us for STM Utah. Maybe you'll tag this sermon or this recap to revisit it next summer, I really would love for you to consider it. Because COVID or no, we're going back to Utah and probably hopefully doing revival as well. <laughs> I think. Pretty sure about that. Let's pray. Mm -hmm.